0: Hello, I'm Stephen Buckley, and we're in a series walking through the grand narrative of the Bible, building a biblical framework, and hopefully having some fun doing so. Uh, Today we are tackling the creation account, the first seven days of the beginning of time. Um, We're going to move through the account one day at a time, Uh, so have your Bible ready. It's a good idea to read chapter one and the first three verses of chapter two uh, beforehand if possible. Um, We're going to be patient with the text and looking at my notes, this could exceed two hours. Um, So you can pause it if you like and divide it into, into say two episodes and watch day four till the end another time or you can just plow through it with me, whatever works for you. And before we dive into the text, let's remind ourselves of the context in which the creation account sits, the Torah. We begin with Genesis, the first of the five books of Moses referred to as the Pentateuch or Torah, uh, Hebrew for teaching and in biblical context instruction or law. The Torah is the first of Three groupings that constitute the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, called the Tanakh, an acronym for uh, for, for Torah, the Nevi'im, the Prophets, the Ketuvim, the Writings, which includes everything else. Uh, these five books were written throughout the time in the wilderness, in the Middle East, uh, between the world they left behind in Egypt and entering the Promised Land, approximately uh, 1400 B.C., It's astonishing to think that these handful of books that began the Bible, which founded much of of Western thought, was written around three and a half thousand years ago. Each book of the Pentateuch is is called by the opening word um, or phrase that began the scroll that it was written on. Genesis is called Bereshit, in the beginning. Um, It was originally called Sefer Masa Bereshit, the book of the act of in the beginning. When the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek in 250 BC, they called it Genesis, geneseos, meaning origins or beginnings. It was titled the Book of Origins, um, although uh, the, the Greek for Genesis was a translation from uh, the Hebrew word toldot, uh, which is frequently translated as, as generations. Genesis reads like a story beginning with um, creation, uh, the Garden of Eden, and uh, ending with the death and the burial of Joseph. Eden, uh, Babel, Noah's Ark, Abraham, they are known the world over. And it's not because it's a book of heroes. It is incredibly honest about the depravity of man. Um, shortcomings of leadership, family tensions, jealousy, sibling rivalry, deception, fertility despair, heartbreak. It's a psychological eye-opener that sets the tone for the rest of the Bible. Ancient national texts would omit negative connotations, to paint the rulers, uh, the culture, the lifestyle in bright light and thus uh, the ruthless honesty of Torah lends it credibility. Genesis answers the questions of life. How did we get here? Why do we die? What is the purpose of living? Why do we wear clothes? Why is there suffering? why are there why are there many nations with many languages and so forth genesis tells us what went wrong and the foundational message of how it can be set right consider that as a percentage of history from from creation to cross genesis covers 60% 60% from creation until the present day all of history genesis covers 40% over 2,300 years of history. The remaining books of Torah cover around 120 years between them. Genesis provides the cosmic context of the patriarchs. It is the foundational book of the foundational unit, which is why all major New Testament writers refer to the book of Genesis. It is referred to throughout scripture more than any other book over 200 quotations or references are in the new testament jesus and the apostles refer to the people and the events of genesis as real people and real history it is a book of history It was originally ordered after the prologue with a heading, The History of Heaven and Earth, followed by ten headings, The Family History of Adam, The Family History of Noah, down to The Family History of Jacob. Each heading describes what became of the creation or person the family history of terror focuses on what became of him namely abraham the family history of isaac mainly concerns jacob the family history of jacob concerns the 12 tribes and in particular joseph and so on the narrative begins with universal scope and it narrows its focus to an in- an individual who is a type of messiah as well as family division it can be viewed as a two division structure genesis 1, 1 to 11 11:9 the origin of world and nations with four major events creation fall flood and nations and then genesis 11:10 to to the end 50:26 uh, the origin of the people of israel with four significant people uh, abraham uh, isaac jacob and joseph some divide the narrative into three major origins that narrow in focus chapter one the origin of the world at uh, two to eleven the origin of the nations and chapters 12 to, to 50 um, is the origin of israel genesis truly is a book of origins it records the origins of the universe life forms man marriage clothing occupation purpose sin death language, um, nations, culture, government, religion, covenant, sabbath, blood sacrifice, salvation, prophecy, peace, war, election, faith, grace, mercy, judgment, music, and so much more. It can be helpful to describe the form of Genesis in this way. Chapters 1 to 2 is defined as Good. Uh, Chapters 3 to 11 is the cause and effect of sin and God's mercy throughout judgment. Uh, 12 is the critical juncture with the call of Abraham. And from there on out, it describes God's dealing with with him and his descendants. And up to uh, 36, we are faced with uh, the distinction between Abraham, Isaac, Jacob uh, from Lot, Ishmael and Esau, respectively. God binding his reputation to the former. Who do we identify with, it asks. Chapters 37 to 50, the story of of Joseph, who is distinct from them all. There is an overall theme of blessings and curses, climaxing in um, a right relationship with the seed of Abraham that will bring blessing, but a wrong one Will result in cursing. His purpose is about the sovereign creator of all, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, the historical and theological basis of Israel as the chosen people. The Son of God appears as the Lord, walking in the garden, as the promise of salvation in Genesis 3:15 and as the angel of God and as typology through um, figures such as Adam and Melchizedek. I will quickly touch on the remaining books of the Torah exodus called by the first words on the scroll these are the names exodus begins with a new king over egypt who did not know joseph the deliverance of and the raising uh, up of moses and speedily into the demonstration of god's uh, mighty power through national deliverance from slavery the sea crossing the creation of israel as a nation at sinai uh, to the lord descending upon the newly constructed tabernacle in the wilderness Robert Alter describes Exodus as a national epic uh, the pressure of events shape the people which forms identity and purpose um, yet they still required a collection of instructions covering all of life that form an institution the first words on the third scroll we call Leviticus are, and he called. The 27 chapters consist of Israel's laws regarding offerings, sacrifices, and the festivals. Leviticus is the, the centerpiece of the Torah, if you like, that includes blood, atonement, I remember uh, Paulson would show how Genesis and Deuteronomy are kind of like book ends of the Torah which had universal implications and then you have Exodus and Numbers either side with, uh, with, na- with a national aspect and then Leviticus the, the kind of tribal focus so it, it narrows in from universal down to tribal in the centre. The book of Numbers, the fourth scroll begins in the wilderness uh, which is appropriate as it covers the 40 years the Israelites journeyed in the wilderness towards the promised land. It contains a census of the people of Israel, which is why we call it numbers, further laws, the grumbling against leadership, hostile peoples, hopes and disappointments, judgment and prophecy, the oracles of Balaam. These are the words Deuteronomy begins. The name Deuteronomy is from two Greek words meaning second law not that it was not that it was a second law but it was a second giving of the law Deuteronomy is a, a recapitulation of uh, themes um, of the grand story of Torah giving more weight to the three previous books um, as an apt conclusion those born in the wilderness uh, they wouldn't have experienced all of the journey so Looking over the Jordan before his departure, Moses addressed the people of Israel with the message of this book that will impact the hearts and minds of the younger generation who will enter the land. It also describes the transition of national and priestly leadership. Deuteronomy contains a striking list of blessings and curses in the final chapters. The five books of Moses should be considered as one, a compound one. Now those who say Moses couldn't have possibly have written all of the Torah focus on two reasons. Uh, Firstly, the history of Genesis, which includes um, the creation through to uh, Joseph's death, ends hundreds of years before his birth. Secondly, Deuteronomy ends with the death of Moses. So, look, this is easily explained. In that period, documents of family generations were were important and they they were passed down. God will have preserved the history through oral tradition and possibly pictorial writing, adding to Moses' extreme clarity of thought. As students of scriptures who believe in divine inspiration, we learn that he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel, it says in Psalm 103. He proclaims what the Lord had commanded in Deuteronomy 1.3. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend, Exodus 33.11. It's possible that Moses compiled as master editor the bulk of Genesis, but equally God could have dictated the creation account and prophecy of his own death the prophets often used past tense the what we call the prophetic perfect a literary technique to signify the certainty of future events plus jesus and the biblical authors said moses wrote it so that settles it for me alter says these five books are chiefly an account of the origins and definition of the nation from its first forebearers who accepted a covenant with God to the moment when the people stands on the brink of entering the promised land. Israel is central to the narrative, beginning with the foundational books, the election of the patriarchs and the exodus of a people unto the formation of a nation. With with that said, let's open the first scroll in the beginning. Day one. The story of history begins with seven ancient Hebrew words. In English, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God who existed eternally from everlasting to everlasting spoke the universe into existence. The English word universe is testament to those first seven synoptic words, uni meaning one or single together with the word verse meaning a spoken sentence, a single spoken sentence. God's word is plenty powerful to create the universe. By implication, God creates out of nothing by his word god speaking into existence is prophetic of the momentary future with power to make it happen immediately it tells us that he's a god who both speaks and acts he speaks and it is done he calls into existence the things that do not exist i thoroughly enjoy learning from books Um, but there is power in the spoken word. Indeed, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of Scripture. Accompanying the spoken word, the spoken word of God the Father, Isaiah would later reveal that God declared it was my hands too. Whose hands? God the Son, pre-incarnate Jesus, who according to John was equally involved in creation saying, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Paul agreed, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Verse 1 to verse 2 moves speedily from God's cosmic view to the surface level of the earth, the focus of his creation, the mighty spirit, Ruach, of God alongside, hovering over the face of Of the waters poised in power to help and sustain. In the beginning, time, past, present, future, the one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, created the heavens, space, height, width, depth, and the earth, matter, solid, liquid, gas, which came into existence simultaneously. The triune God conceived the trinity of trinities of existence in ways that we cannot fathom, but in a way that he wishes to express them in plain terms. The universe then had a beginning. Contrasting Mesopotamian creation stories written prior to the account of Moses, the God of the Bible has no beginning, while science struggles with answering how non-life can arise from nothing and how life came from non-life, Genesis 1 answers with a creator. God is the first cause. This declares that life has meaning. A creator creates for purpose. Without a creator God, there is no meaning. Life on earth is not down to random chance. Genesis provides the necessary need-to-know breakdown of the six days in which he created, the order of which is to teach us his ways, plans, and the very essence of who he is. Now, too often do I hear the false dichotomy that the creation story is about the who or the why, not the how. Well, if this is true, why is he awfully specific about how he created it? The how is tremendously important. If you miss it, you miss the character he is portraying of himself and the roadmap of the grand narrative ahead. The authorial intention was theological and historical. Who, why, how and so what. If you study commentaries on Genesis 1 with any sort of depth, It will not be long before you come across Mesopotamian mythology uh, that I just alluded to. This ancient literature includes Assyrian, uh, Babylonian and Sumerian creation epics such as the the Astrahasis and the Enuma Elish. Uh, They supplied religious and political backbone to societies describing mythical gods and elevating heroic people to legendary status. Pagan epics portray gods within uh, the forces of nature. From the first verse, the Bible distinguishes God as pre-existent creator of nature, leaving, as Asana puts it, no room for magic in the religion of the Bible. When God speaks, he's not performing magic which, like the pagan worldview, is a a kind of nature god manipulating nature through voice, but a god independent of nature that that is subject to his every breath. Those who foolishly succumb to the seduction of dark magic call upon demons to manipulate nature. They fail to recognise that they themselves are being manipulated by the evil one. All of this remains within a, a closed system, Creation, calling upon creation, to manipulate creation, to impress creation. The Bible pulls away from this idolatry of magic and points to the self-existent creator God who doesn't just move things around, manipulating will, but creates from nothing. Verse 2 is frequently misinterpreted, it does not convey chaotic scenes as if God brought about an unruly situation through which he calls to order. Firstly, the Hebrew expression that earth was without form and void simply means that God had created the raw materials which for a moment were, were somewhat shapeless and unpopulated, not wild and disorderly. The land being a material mass was in some basic form positioned under the water, and therefore not not void as in empty space. Furthermore, the only other use of this expression is found in Jeremiah 4.23, and it refers to the uncultivated and uninhabited land of Israel. Thus, the translation without form and void speaks of a mass in a stage that is is not yet fully formed and prior to it being fruitful. Now secondly, commentators place weight on supposed symbolism within the, the closing words of the verse, uh, darkness was over the face of the deep. Leaning on ancient extra biblical influence, they point to the dark deep water connecting it with uh, disorder, evil sea monsters, and specifically Satan. Now the Israelites may have been aware of uh, the antecedent pagan creation epics such as the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation myth. And legitimate connections between the deep, the deep water, and Satan can be drawn throughout the scriptures. However, on this occasion it does not fit the context. Briefly, the word darkness, uh, although symbolic of evil, is is not always meant that way. Light had not been created yet. does that mean that God, who is holy, was not there? No, it is simply picturing the moment. It was dark, right? Let's turn to, um, to the word deep waters. Now, it has been claimed that the deep of Genesis 1-2, uh, Hebrew Tiam, is, is a form of tiamat, the name of uh, the Assyrian Babylonian goddess of salt water associated with chaos now Naum sana a scholar writes it must be remembered this combat myth once fully developed appears in a very attenuated and fragmentary form and in the biblical sources Uh, The several allusions have to be pieced together into some kind of coherent unity. He goes on to say the Hebrew Hebrew term teom is never used with a definite article, something that is characteristic of proper names. Victor Hamilton concurs the deep of Genesis 1 is not personified and in no way is it viewed as some turbulent antagonistic force. Again, scholar uh, Gordon Wenham declares that the word tion for deep is not an allusion to the conquest of Tiamat as in the Babylonian myth. So if you crowbar a rebellious persona into verse 2, you are saying... Uh, the rebellion of angelic beings occurred during the creation of the week. But as we will discover, Satan and the host of heaven uh, are still obedient to God until after the creation week. Um, God said to Job, When I laid the foundations of the earth, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, if the source of this, this kind of so called chaos, is, is not a persona, is God battling? the forces of nature that he's just created and in control of. All notion of the connection between creation and cosmic battles was banished from Genesis with extreme care. The idea of strife and tension between God and nature is unthinkable. To emphasize the point, the words, and it was so, are repeated after each divine fiat, that's sana. The spirit of God is described in verse 3 as hovering over the face of the waters, not battling evil chaos. Hovering is implied elsewhere in scripture as parental affection and covering. Wenham says there is no hint in the biblical text that the deep was a power independent of God which he had to fight to control. Furthermore. The concept of god dwelling with chaotic matter before creation before before the completion of creation would be a contradiction of terms the god of the bible is a god of order not chaos it is not in his character to bring about a natural state of watery chaos order is natural chaos is cursed nature now Job 38 describes the precision and care of creation like an architect and craftsman. It refers to the laying, laying the foundation of the earth, its measurements, a stretched line upon it, a cornerstone, the sea with doors like right? clouds it's garment this is not a builder who who just dumps a load of material on site before he starts forming it and people walking past thinking wow that looks like a chaotic mess no this is an engineer who is carefully measuring laying the foundations furnishing etc he shaped the mountains he established the fountains of the deep he marked out the foundations of the earth like a master workman it says in Proverbs eight, "The ancient epics are written from a pagan worldview of the cosmos, whereby the underlying themes are of conflict of, of a multiplicity of gods linked to powers of nature, a pantheon of gods contending for alpha God, one lording power over the other other through through violence. Right, the innumerable leash describes antagonistic forces that, that accounts for the specific formation of creation. Sala says, The book of Genesis has no direct reference to the notion of creation in terms of struggle. Indeed, the very idea is utterly alien to the whole atmosphere of the narrative. Satan has inspired false creation accounts to suggest that he was there as as forces of nature right before his time hoping to be credited for the form of the cosmos and we should guard from these falsehoods. Educated in Pharaoh's household Moses must have been familiar with ancient creation myths but even if he knew nothing of them today Some would still comment on the similarities and assume that you borrowed aspects always referencing a hidden meaning in in the pagan literature because the Hebrew Bible was, was written afterwards. The reality is that Satan who knows the truth twisted the truth to manipulate people groups, and later Moses is given the truth directly from God, not a partial adaptation of of, of a satanic version. It it polemically rebuts and exposes the folly of them. In fact, the whole creation account, like much of scripture, is, is a polemic of ancient, present and future societal thought void of God. And we should read ancient myths in light of the Bible, not the other way around. Now, we do consider the availability of non-biblical ancient texts, but the chronological order uh, does not matter in the same way that biblical books relate. The Bible is not attempting to compete with comic books, but rather cutting through twisted narratives with truth. There is no conflict, there's uh, no rivals of, of the Supreme Creator. Now, the ancient Hebrews, they they will have viewed the oceans as terrifyingly deep and turbulent, but is that not the point? Like Moses is saying these terrifying waters were once orderly created by our God and who is still in control of them. Personally, I think the influence of ancient creation epics on the human author is overplayed and the inspiration of the divine author underplayed. In terms of biblical motifs, there are a kind of dubious connections as well as clear-cut ones. Two phrases are popularly connected with the deep of Genesis 1-2, uh, raising sinister uh, associations. Firstly, the phrase, uh, the deep that crouches beneath of, of Genesis 49. It's in the context of Jacob blessing his sons, in particular Joseph. It says this, "...by by the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb." He's not blessed by a wicked persona of the deep, but blessed from from all ends of creation. (laughs) That's what it's saying. Hamilton translates it as the bounty of, of heaven above. Um, the bounty of the deep that crouches below the bounty of the breast and womb uh, similarly the, the the same phrase that's used in Deuteronomy 33 is in the context of Moses blessing the the 12 tribes in particular the tribe of of Joseph it says and of Joseph he said blessed by the lord be his land with the choicest gifts of heaven above and of the deep that crouches beneath again The tribe tribe is not blessed by a wicked persona of the deep. Peter Craigie explains, The deep lying beneath is a poetic description of the subterranean waters, which were believed to be the source of springs and rivers, which in turn watered the land and contributed to its fertility. The deep was counted as a blessing. You can't just look at a word like, like crouches and think oh that sounds sinister (laughs) right you can do all things through a through a text out of context (laughs) the deep that gave forth its voice is another phrase called called upon um, in support of the, the chaos theory, as I call it, and it's from Habakkuk 3. Um, the context here is is of a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, which poetically pictures Jesus as the returning warrior. It says this: The mountains saw you and writhed; the raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice; it lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in. the their place here Habakkuk he does perform he does personify aspects of creation so so some say that nature is, is the picture of God's enemies. right? But verse eight is evident that the Lord is not, he's not angry against the river or the sea. Habakkuk is depicting nature's subjection to Jesus upon his return. His commands move mountains, the seas roar, it gave forth its voice, the sun and moon, obedient as in the day of Gibeon. And Michael Rydelnik would would agree with me there. In fact, I believe this is talking about the second episode of the sea crossing to come, the second exodus. Um, We can safely dismiss those passages as support for the chaos theory. Now, in terms of legitimate connections, the Bible speaks of Rahab, distinct from the prostitute of the Canaanite city of Jericho, The Rahab who is, who is behind the powers of Egypt and is connected with the dragon and the deep sea who are defeated by the Lord in an eschatological battle. Uh, There is a figure called Leviathan, the twisting serpent, connected with the dragon that is in the sea. Um, See Isaiah 27, Psalm 74, Job 3. Revelation 13 speaks of a beast with seven heads that rises out of the sea. In chapters 12 and 20, it says that the the great dragon, the ancient serpent, is the devil and Satan. So there is a symbolic connection with with Rahab, uh, with the dragon, Leviathan, and Satan, and Rahab the deep sea but this is post creation days post fall of man and and fall of satan we shouldn't pry satan back into genesis 1 2 and and call it chaos quite the opposite it was calm and majestic though powerful uh, later satan would stir up chaos be associated with the deep um, that god will one day tame again i don't see a foreshadowing of chaos to order in genesis 1 it can not be Listen to Hamilton. The biblical writers deliberately use these mythical allusions, not in the setting of creation, but in the context of redemption. There is no evil inherent in the world that God has made. Where is evil conquered? In creation? No, rather evil and chaos and disruption are conquered within time in the redemption of God's people. So in conclusion, in Genesis one two the deep is not personified satan is still obedient at this point as we'll find out in in a moment if satan is linked to sea monsters uh, the sea monsters were not created until day five Uh, the spirit of god is depicted as affectionately covering the waters it's a contradiction of terms it's a polemic of pagan accounts there are fewer dots throughout the scriptures we often connect and legitimate biblical motifs should not be fired back into the creation account with a pagan arrow verse two of creation is the continuation of a beautiful picture of, of god perfectly and lovingly ordering materials not subduing chaos. A plain reading of verse 2 means that he creates materials in basic form and then shaped and ordered them ready to be populated. Now, I appreciate I've laboured this point, but many people are misinterpreting and they're running with it and they're publishing books and videos and I'm dismayed with the distortions and and we should correct each other where necessary. Various views have developed as to how to translate the first three verses. The original Hebrew and early Aramaic manuscripts were written not only without vowels, as common in modern Hebrew, but without punctuation too. The key question is, how does verse 1 relate to the text that follows the first three verses can be seen to flow together as one spoken unit uh, depicting the continuous and rhythmic process of creation and for some time jewish interpreters have read the first three sentences as as one long sentence so for example uh, the first two verses can be seen composed of dependent clauses and verse three as the main clause it can therefore be translated as follows in the beginning of god god 's creating the sky and the dry land, while the land was still uninhabitable and unproductive, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters, God said, "Let there be light, and there was light now Robert Alter um, I have to say Robert Alter must win the award for, for, the, for the best best looking <laughs> the best-looking interpretation with with a commentary. It really is beautiful, um, and he translates um, the the one as the three as one. And he begins it with when, when God began to create heaven and earth. Now, as Hamilton points out, the result is an unusually long and rambling sentence. Now what's more is that is that Alter, who I really appreciate by the way, the Alter's translation of verse one and similar constructs is the equivalent of the first two lines of the Enuma Elish. Now considering the creation account is a polemic, I doubt God would render it almost identically. It opens the door to something existing before verse one, such as chaotic matter dwelling with God, which I trust we've debunked, um, rather than creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. There is no doubt in my mind that creation had an absolute beginning as a direct creation of God which is described in verse 1. Discussion uh, pivots around whether the opening word Bereshit is is in the absolute state, is is an intermediate noun or or a constructive state which determines its trajectory but we won't go into that. Translations are determined somewhat by theology uh, to a degree they are an interpretation. Now, there are those who hold uh, theologies that require a, a, a time gap to be inserted between verse one and two. And now some require a long time gap to fit their theory of evolution others desire a short time gap within the day even for the fall of satan to take place appealing to ezekiel 28 arnold frutenbaum takes this position for example though he does affirm 24 hour days i will demonstrate in future sessions why i don't believe ezekiel 28 is referring to satan but also that passage is referring to to uh, the garden of eden Which had not been created at this stage and the earth was entirely underwater hence hence formless and void neither gap is necessary you know some translators i think are genuinely pursuing the truthful constructs influenced by their theological assumptions others seeking to vindicate their own pet theories ridelnick argues it is impossible to infer any historical gap between any of the clauses in these three verses Reviewing the historical positions, Wenham explains to some length the the reasons why he prefers to translate verse 1 as the main clause Uh, describing the first act of creation, verse 2 and 3, describe the subsequent phases in God's creative activity. And he notes that this was the standard view from the 3rd century BC. In agreement, Hamilton uh, suggests that verse 1 should be translated as an independent clause, a main clause and therefore its own sentence, um, with uh, the traditional breaks providing three verses. And he says that this fits the overall style of the chapter um, as does the complete Jewish Bible and most English translations today favor the three verse division um, which should be read chronologically viewed as as activity within the first day of creation without insertion of our own ideas What is evident is there is this kind of musical and an almost kind of poetic tempo to the creation account god is the soloist the narrator the accompanist Uh, but do not confuse the artistic nature with a pleasant story detached from reality genesis is history it may not be a science textbook and thank goodness because they change all the time but it is scientifically accurate and His precision of word placement has dazzled commentators for millennia. On day one of history, having brought about a starting point that ticks forwards and a volume in which he placed raw materials consisting largely of water, God spoke and created light, positioning it from an all-encompassing brightness to become more focused. And this separation of light from darkness means that God can now see the beauty of the light. Now before the separation God saw and declared the status of the light as good. Now if you insert chaos before this you are forced to insert two additional status points into the creation account namely good and then chaotic bad before God declared it good. Personally I will stick with God's quality controlled declarations now jewish rabbis coined the hebrew expression shekinah glory you may have heard that before which means that he caused to dwell denoting the presence or or the dwelling of the lord god on the earth now could it be said could it be said that this light signified the Shekinah glory. The intention of God from the moment of his first recorded words was to dwell on earth with people, the status of which would be good. Light would become symbolic of life, deliverance, the law of God, communing with God, the essence of God. Paul would go on to say, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Echoing the creation account, John writes, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the first chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus is the Word, the Light, the only Son from the Father. Two chapters later, he says, The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil works done unto the Lord are done with the inner light and under the light of Messiah and declared good it was his light in the first place and so he takes the credit for any of our good works through Isaiah God says I form light and I create darkness I make well-being and create calamity I am the Lord who does all these things interesting that god declares the light good before it is separated from darkness prophetic of the future story light was universal and declared good before darkness entered the world when light would become distinct and limited and now that does not mean um the reality of darkness in and of itself is wicked, but that he created light and darkness to set up symbols to represent well being uh, and calamity, or good and evil, or blessing and judgment, etc. There is no calamity in the creation account, but symbols that would help demonstrate um, uh, spiritual, moral, and divine realities. Isaiah, for example, would later write, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. A hint to the light of Messiah who would rise upon Israel. The separation of light from darkness is the first of five separations, all of which speak of light or water. The process of separation is synonymous with divine election. Later, Israel would learn to distinguish between uh, the, the holy and the the common, the unclean and the clean. Light is elected to to live under, right? The waters above, aside from the the kind of encapsulating waters which we'll come on to, include include the rain that provides drinking water. Uh, To divide and distinguish means he is the lawgiver, right? Created laws that uphold the divisions and who dare confuse them. In an expression of his uh, supreme authority, God gives light and dark, the names day and night. Naming is part of the separating, defining roles and purpose. Creation happens in light. God does not require the sun to illuminate his work the creating of light anticipates the creation of the heavenly lights the formation of light created a shadowy darkness upon one side of the matter preparing the way for sleep patterns agricultural cycles and so forth sleep patterns are they're a gift from god giving us rest for one third of our lives we are unconscious to the world around us they remind us that we are weak without the creator and sustainer of all in his mercy he curtails the day's accumulation of sin my shepherd makes me lie down he restores my soul to rest our our mind our tongue our body we lie down each night only to be raised in power and strength on the first day, we read, there was evening and morning. So the unformed earth had begun to, to spin in some fashion at this point. Rotating eastward uh, means the sun uh, would, would rise in the east. The scriptures point to a spherical earth. Solomon Solomon wrote, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to its place where it rises. Isaiah indicates God's dwelling in relation to the sphere or circle of the earth. It is he, he says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. God set the earth's um, axle tilt, which may have been uh, somewhat less than than the 23, I think it's 23.4 degrees today, um, that would generate seasons evening came before morning because the darkness preceded the light and this set forth the pattern of the day beginning with evening before morning unlike um unlike our days on the gregorian calendar which kind of start and end at midnight god's calendar days are determined by sundown to sundown hence uh, the morning is is really in the middle of the day god worked in the day and not the night and this sets up the pattern for the working week a literary pattern can be seen throughout genesis 1 that describe the stages of each creation so firstly you have announcement god said uh, secondly the commanding word let there be uh, thirdly the fulfillment and it was so or and there was fourthly the description of execution um, and god separated or made uh, so god created uh, fifthly the approval god saw that it was good uh, number 6 naming or blessing and god called god blessed and number seven the concluding formula uh, with the day number there was evening and morning day so it is conceivable that the the sevenfold pattern was was followed throughout each creative work or or each creative day um, had had at least seven though only verses three to five on day one include all stages of the seven standard formulae in simple sequence Uh, now the seventh day did not include creative acts but if a different kind of seven-fold formula was employed uh, we would have seven times seven equals 49 the stages which which should make us think of the jubilee and the pentecost and so forth um, and we can see several similar elements including so you've got like an announcement of seizing from work god god finished his work uh, number three uh, that he had done and number four description of implementation and he rested god rested number six blessings so he blessed number seven the day number um the seventh day uh, the description of execution and declaring it holy and god made it holy now this is something that i've pondered um but I'm not aware of anyone making that connection, so I could be seeing something there that, 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 that isn't there. But it's certainly interesting, and uh, and it would be unsurprising from, from a God of logic and maths and time and musicality. Day two. On day two, God created an expanse separating the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And in this way, God stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth thus defining the the water planet as we call it with space between it and the outer cosmic waters when nasa announces discoveries of water deposits on other planets it should come as no surprise to those who understand that not only the earth was formed out of water and through water as peter said but the entire cosmos now, this vast space between the, the earth's water and the outer waters of the universe are called, uh, are called heavens, plural. Deuteronomy describes the expanse as the heaven and the heaven of heavens. Our atmosphere would be the, the inner or first heaven, sometimes translated sky, in which the birds fly. The expanse we refer often to as space, a secondary heaven, and an outer or third heaven beyond that which I'm sure God keeps clear from our telescopes, as we'll find out for good reason God dwells there. The waters above, which are not mentioned again, encapsulate the three-story universe. In separating the waters, God moved from a compressed expanse and stretched it out to create a plurality of heavens. Isaiah 42 says, he created the heavens and stretched them out. Uh, Chapter 44 says, who alone stretched out the heavens uh, Psalm 104 says stretching out the heavens like a tent stretching like a tent a cosmic tabernacle readied for God to dwell within the use of uh, the Hebrew word for expanse throughout the scriptures is particularly interesting Ezekiel 1.22, the LEB version says, an expanse like the outward appearance of awesome ice. The same uh, verse in the ESV version says, an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out. Uh, Daniel 12.3, the LEB version, shine like the brightness of the expanse can you like him spread out the skies hard as a cast metal mirror job 37 18 the esv now i prefer the word expanse but it can be translated as firmament or vault the leb translates the expanse in genesis 1 as a vaulted dome the Hebrew word uh, rakia comes from the Hebrew root raka, uh, which means to spread out or stretch, like we, we just read in Isaiah, or to trample, stamp out, or beat out. Exodus 39:3, they hammered out thin sheets of gold. Numbers 16:38, made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar. Uh, the same verse, the LEB version, gilded leaf plating. Isaiah 14, 19 a goldsmith overlays it with gold a beaten silver is translated in Jeremiah 10:9 Proverbs 8 reads when he established the heavens i was there when he drew the circle on the face of the deep when he made firm the skies above so god de- defines the circle or the spherical shape of the water planet and then he firms up the heavens. The expanse then is connected with firming up, working hard like metal, polishing it bright, shiny, like a, like a mirror or ice crystal. The outer waters God separated could be a canopy of water that encapsulates the universe, an encapsulated expanse with a, with a shimmering, hammered outer layer of ice. And it's these kinds of insights that help build your worldview of the cosmic tabernacle we dwell within. The separation of waters is the second separation after light. The vertical parting of the waters to bring forth new creation foreshadows the horizontal parting of the waters on day three, and in turn the parting of the waters in the Exodus account, which in turn foreshadows a future separation of waters unto the formation of a special creation. (laughs) With the outer heavens in place God's heavenly abode from day two and onwards is now a possibility the uh, approval aspect of the sevenfold formulae is is missing in the passage Uh, perhaps as Wenham suggests because the waters were were not fully separated until the following day or could it be that the heavenly temple was in the process of being built and it wasn't appropriate for an approval mid-build there's a thought God is pictured as a potter spreading out the sky and next he will spread out the earth. The author moves from from heaven's throne to the abode of man to reflect on the earth. All elements are ready to be shaped. Day three. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. On day three, God gathers the waters on our planet together to let the dry land appear. This is the third separation, the water parting for new creation on the land. Now, it does not mean that the land was all in one place and the sea was, was one kind of surrounding here. Verse 10 says seas plural, so they were, they were shapes of continents and islands for man to to explore Uh, there's a spreading out uh, creating kind of mountain ranges and valleys some of which would become lakes and so forth although it would look uh, somewhat different from our post-flood world today Uh, scripture is adamant that God created alone Isaiah says who spread out the earth by myself you know, the tools that we use today, the jewellery, uh, cars, phones, planes, it's easy to forget the work that God did in these first few days of creation. God has enriched the earth with, with elements and metals, precious stones for man to discover, make with, build with and fill the earth with his glory. Now, naturally, we uh, tend to focus on the land, but we mustn't forget the seas in the context of creation psalm 33 says he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap he puts the deeps in storehouses it's his storehouses to do as he pleases seas are like giant reservoirs storehouses that that god can use to bless people with and to judge people a deep world for for the fish life and for man to explore uh, the bible refers to ocean springs job 38 says have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep uh, proverbs 8 um, he established the fountains of the deep now it wasn't until the 1960s that man discovered springs on the seafloor. it seems that god also houses these these kind of giant stores of water under the sea floor to use as and when he pleases psalm 104 poetically depicts the aspects of creation Uh, verses 6 to 9 describe the spreading out of the earth it says you covered it with the deep as with a garment the water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose and the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set the boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. God covers the earth with a garment of water. A garment speaks of, of protection and, and provision and it's designed to precisely fit. The relationship between land and sea is not out of control, prominent in modern thought. They rise or sink to their appointed place. The seas have set boundaries. The land and water, they work together to support life you make springs gush forth in the valleys they flow between the hills they give drink to every beast of the field the wild donkeys quench their thirst beside them the birds of the heavens dwell they sing among the branches from your lofty abode you water the mountains the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work The land he calls earth and the waters he calls seas. The naming reveals God's continual and direct authority over. This is the last time though that he will name anything. From here on he will cease to name, man will be given that authority to name. Now after this first work on day three, once again he declares his creation as good. In a second creative act, God commands a covering for the earth with vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit. He clothes the earth with greenery. And this covering also provides a home uh, with food in abundance. There is essentially three divisions of vegetation. There's grass and grain, there's herbs and vegetation and fruit trees. Although uh, because the first listed is a kind of broader term uh, for vegetation, followed by two two types or representatives uh, that are then defined or qualified, some argue only two divisions are are referred to. The plants and trees that are self-propagating are edible for man. The the former bear their seeds externally and the latter bear theirs internally inside uh, the fruit. God has given them the capacity to reproduce. I'm inclined to go with uh, three divisions, uh, two of which are then made distinct because they qualify for for cultivation and consumption um, as man is the focus. Also, grass and grain, and such like must have been created at some point. So it makes sense here within the broader term of the the first mention on day three. uh, They would sprout each according to its kind. 10 times, 10 times the word kind is used in Genesis 1. God is dogmatic about distinctions between kinds. Within vegetation, there is distinct separation of kinds. DNA would allow for variation of species, but each is limited to its kind or or family group. Psalm 104 says, "'Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. God covers himself with light as with a garment, and he does unto men as he does to himself. He covers above their heads with a garment of light and then surrounds with a garment of water and a garment of vegetation. For the third time in the week and for the first time a second approval of the day, he declares his creation good. Now, creation symmetry. There is a a pattern and symmetry to the creation week, signalling that both context and and form of the text matters the first three days provide the realms to be occupied over the following three days day one provides universal space uh, which will be expanded on day two to be occupied on creation day four day two provides the atmospheric heaven and ocean realms for the flying and sea creatures on day five and finally uh, day three provides the earthly the land realm to be occupied on day six within the symmetry there is also a connection between the materials of creation light created on day one is assigned to the heavenly lights on day four the air and water created on day two necessary necessary for life forms on day five Uh, vegetation on day three will be for food and furnishing for man and animals created on day six Uh, we can see also that the first half the working week has four creative acts and so too the second half has four creative acts Uh, what is more is that day one and day two each has one creative act followed by day three with two creative acts in the same pattern day four and five each has one creative act followed by day six with two creative acts it reveals something about authorial intention musical rhythms of the of the creation account are they're, they're precise and they behold ordered beauty and beauty of Order. Wenham uh, notes the chiastic pattern throughout the first section of the creation week from 1-1 to 2-3, chapter 2, verse 3. Although the English verse 1-1 uh, begins, God created heavens and earth, the Hebrew is actually ordered created God, heavens and earth. Uh, and at the end of the week, it is it is reversed. Heavens and earth, God created a reflection within within the wording illustrating the reflection of man and his kingdom to god and the heavenly kingdom Seen in the creative acts, the text also reveals two poles, heaven and earth, like heaven coming down to earth and remaining entwined. So we have, uh, starting at the top, day one, down to day six, we have heaven, heaven, earth, heaven, earth, earth day four day four is halfway of the week with three days either side the space that was created on day one uh, which was expanded on day two is now filled with a beautiful array of galaxies on day four god creates the sun taking up the task from the light on day one the moon and the stars placing them in the mid heavens to be seen on earth as well as the immediate bodies that circled the Earth God, created all the planets and their constellations. Genesis categorizes them together as lights or luminaries. Uh, this group together functions a threefold purpose to separate the day from the night to be for signs and for seasons and for, for days and for years and to illuminate the earth to give light upon the earth verses 17 to 18 is a, is a clear summary and God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness We see a a threefold function that is reflected from from verse 14 to 18, divide, rule, give light, each mentioned twice, mirroring one another. Within the function of ruling, there are three categories. This heavenly sign, heavenly signs, the festal seasons and days and years. Signs uh, can be further categorised. In Genesis 1, the sun is referred to as the greater light and the moon is referred to as the lesser light. Hamilton explains that the Hebrew names for the sun and moon are very similar in other Semitic languages, often representing mythical divinities, and therefore God refuses to name them, at least in the Genesis record. And following suit, the author does not use the typical Hebrew words for sun and moon found elsewhere in the Old Testament. The message is clear. Man is not to personify them or deify them. Contrasting the creation myths, the created light should should point to the Creator, they are not to be worshipped or to be served by man, but to serve man. While it, it does name the stars, it does so as a kind of an, an aside or an anticlimax, and the stars. Some translations say the stars also and this contrasts the the Babylonian creation myth that held that the stars as the highest rank followed by the moon and then the sun, the opposite order. God is making the polemical point. These myths are false. The Genesis account is the truth. Worship none but me the vastness of the galaxies would not only instill an awe and fear of our creator but also be a tool for telling the story and a test to god's active part in redemptive history in his loving kindness for knowing that sin would wreck his relationship with man he set the stage of creation with the capacity to signpost his plan of redemption these lights in space which He gives to all of them their names, according to Psalm 147. So perhaps he does, but he doesn't doesn't tell you. Uh, Form what we call today the Zodiac. Um, The Zodiac, which uh, from the Greek word, which means living circle or circle of animals. And the Zodiac contains fixed pictures in the sky controlled only by God's laws of the heavens and there are 12 main pictures in the constellations that show uh, throughout the year uh, that would be for signs for those on earth in his infinite wisdom each formation a picture story signaling a message of of the necessary steps of of episodes before ultimate redemption declaring the end from the beginning the twelve pictures that form a continuous circle around the earth are a woman, a pair of scales, a scorpion, an archer, a goatfish, a man holding a cauldron, two fish, a lamb, an ox, twin boys, a crab, and a lion. The story to watch for then begins with a woman and ends with a lion. As The earth is set in motion, these kind of stick pictures swipe from east to west. In the day, the sun illuminates the atmosphere, what's called clothing the picture, obscuring the the stars during the day. And due to precession, the constellations shift a tiny amount each year relative to our seasons. It is a divine clock with built-in precession. From the beginning, God is speaking broadcasting across the skies for all humanity excuses will be found wanting now that man and satan have twisted the meaning of the pictures in the skies, such as horoscopes christians today are they're they're wary of any messages in the sky and i want to make it clear abundantly clear stay away from horoscopes and such like it will poison you now at the same time like all reactionary theology, we've made the mistake to, to say that the sky means nothing. And for this reason, we're, we're missing God's biggest billboard aired nightly. Listen to the words of David's psalm, uh, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handy work. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Genesis is clear. They are to serve us with signs that point to his blueprint. Consider these words in the book of Job. Can you bind the chains of the pleads? Or loose the cords of Oregon? Can you lead forth the Mazaroth? constellations in their season or can you guide the bear with its children do you know the ordinances of the heavens can you establish their rule on earth Within the subdivision of signs, we could say there are three categories, the the daily nightly signs, uh, so you have the zodiac at night, uh, the daily navigational use, uh, and they are a sign of Israel's perpetuity, Um, the irregular but perhaps more expected signs like a rainbow or storms, And then special celestial signs that mark an imminent event, such as in in Isaiah 38, when the Lord gave a physical sign in the light to signal he was about to fulfill a promise. Or all the sun, uh, remember the sun that stopped shining when Jesus was on the cross. Um, Or the list of celestial eschatological signs now as, as well as signs the planetary systems make for seasons and days and years commentators agree that, that uh, days and years are connected in in the same uh, grouping and days mean the earth um, that, that spins on an axis will rotate once in 24 hours years means the earth rotates around the sun once year and these lights could now generate seasonal weather conditions and mark time psalm 104 says he made the moon to mark the seasons the sun knows it's time for setting you make darkness and it is night the seasons mean agricultural cycles and the capacity for festivals in fact uh, seasons can be translated as appointed times or fixed Times, which causes us to think of the appointed feast days and periods given to Israel. Paul uh, Bauchamp suggests that by mentioning fixed times, seasons, on the fourth day of creation, the author is hinting that Wednesday was often a day on which great festivals, and in particular New Year's Day, always fell. If the original Jubilee, Jubilee calendar is considered, it's a possibility. God set the world in motion from the season of new life, spring. It would become the biblical new year given to Israel, the first of Aviv or or Nisan in Exodus 12 we uh, take the the makeup of of the universe for granted don't we but imagine if there was no day or night imagine if the weather was the same every day with no seasons There is no rise or fall of the tides from the gravitational pull of the of the moon and the sun right? it'd be incredibly difficult to discern time and and daily and monthly and yearly cycles that god created it as such confronts us with the fact that that time is ticking and that we expect experience seasons physically, agriculturally, spiritually, and it will not always be like this. They teach man about the cyclic nature of history, not in a Greek sense, but in a way that that God can teach us through foreshadows throughout redemptive history. Seasons teach us that pain and dark times are temporal and that new life will come if we patiently endure, that a day is coming a fixed day, a unique day that will be a day unlike any other. Now I don't know about you, but uh, pictures of galaxies, pictures of them, they they provide me with this deep sense of awe. And and David as a shepherd boy would would lay in the fields watching the stars at nighttime, and would later write, You have set your glory above the heavens, I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place all separation is done by day four the midpoint separation distinguishes one from another it means in god's awesome power he divides selects chooses prepares the way for new life blessing cultivation responsibility First we noted the black and white of day and night on day one, and then the blue skies and and seas, along with the browns and the reds of the earth, littered with a glittering of metals and stones, and then the green clothing of the earth with grass and veg and trees, and now the greys of the moon and the yellow sun and stars to complete the rainbow. Man will soon add to the colour mix. Day five. For the sixth time of the week, day five begins with God said. He created the sea creatures and the birds. Day five corresponds with day two, uh, the vertical uh, separation of the world, water producing. The skies provide space for the birds to fly and the waters below the, the dwelling for the sea creatures. Although uh, translated birds, these flying creatures include bats, uh, birds, bats, flying insects, pterodactyl, and so forth. These fly across the expanse of the heavens or across the face of the vaulted dome of heaven, uh, the LEB says. They, they fly across the expanse, the firmament, the vault, across across the vault as a backdrop, the distant distance kind of ice dome if you please now of course uh, the the outer dome is impossible for us to see our atmosphere the inner heaven provides the colors of a painting the aquatic creatures are categorized into two groups firstly the large creatures you've got mammals uh, and reptiles which includes uh, whales shark crocodiles uh, large snakes and marine dinosaur like the plesiosaur uh, now sometimes translated as great sea monsters uh, the literal translation is the great reptiles and these great creatures as as awe-inspiring as they may be should not be worshipped other cultures worshipped great creatures such as the crocodile and the leviathan genesis is clear god created the great sea creatures to to display his skill and his might Now, we touched on these uh, great sea monsters who would become symbolic of uh, beings who rebelled against God. Uh, But in the same way that light and dark are symbols, um, nothing was corrupted or competing for power at this time. Hamilton asserts, uh, Genesis 1 does not even hint of a battle. The tanninim, the sea monsters, are simply large creatures of the water and are created by God. Again, these powerful creatures, they do not depict chaos or a battle. There was harmony. Um, Psalm 147 says, praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. To behold an, an awe and later a fear of these powerful creatures that could easily destroy us, you know, apply then an infinite multiple to those emotions about, about the heavenly one who is infinitely more powerful and majestic and of whom the sea creatures are called to praise. The second category were the, the shoals of smaller fish and creeping life along the bed. Uh, Psalm 104 says, here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. An abundant realm for abundant life. Again, they are created according to their kinds. Distinct family kinds with variation of species, but limited to their own kind. One kind cannot become another kind. Having inspected and declared it was good, for the first time, God speaks to somebody. Here, we observe the first blessing in verse 22, telling them to be fruitful And multiply. The ESV uses the word swarm three times delivering an overtone of of multiplication and fertility. He blesses and, and then orders in that sequence. The blessing involves the capacity to reproduce and the order being the expansion of life that God sees as good day six on day six god begins with creating the land animals there are three main groups of cattle uh, so livestock the large uh, domesticated quadrupeds creeping and crawling things some mice reptiles insects etc and all other beasts uh, wild animals of the earth Uh, let the earth bring forth suggests that these living creatures were uh, created out of the ground. The higher animals on day six and Adam were made from the ground uh, but the process will differ for Adam. The term livestock indicates a kind of tame group of animals which would uh, remain with a tame nature throughout the generations, God's provision and foresight even beyond sin. Wild animals does not mean that they have a a, a kind of an an aggressive disposition but an independence as opposed to the tameable animals that are kind of useful for everyday tasks the creation of land animals will have included all extinct animals also including yes the dinosaur kinds now our minds they kind of rush to images of jurassic park but we have to remind ourselves that God's creatures lived in relative harmony, and they wouldn't be hunting each other or, or man for food. These land animals, they they do not receive a, a direct blessing followed by an order or a command like the flying and water creatures. Um, it is reserved reserved only for the the first day of creating animate life or uh, and 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 human life uh, later on. Um, perhaps because the the blessing of man covered the works of, of, of day six or because man would be responsible for the population growth to ensure they were, they were a help and not competition for dominance of the land. The Psalms once more show that God has not just haphazardly spread out the earth but he's made a fit for everything. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees The high mountains are for the wild goats The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers (laughs) Again, there is a, a kind of reflection, a chiastic order within the passage You have livestock and creeping things Beasts of the earth, beasts of the earth, livestock and creeping things Patterns within patterns, layers of literary beauty now before turning to the creation of man god declares his work as good Man is the climax of creation. The distinctiveness of humanity is emphasised. The earth was the focal point of his creation and now man is the focus of his creation upon the earth. The triune nature of God is seen in the creation of man. Unlike his uh, previous creative acts, in verse 26 uh, there is an announcement in the first person God's intention then god said let us make man in our image after our likeness let us in our after our these plural pronouns make perfect sense when you understand that Godhead to encompass three persons now those who question the doctrine of the trinity must ask who god was speaking to if not himself now at least six different explanations have been given including a mythical god speaking to lesser gods, God speaking to the earth, God singular speaking of himself and within himself in a plural of majesty, self-deliberation of God, God speaking to the heavenly courts made up of angelic creatures, and of course the proper uh, christian explanation that us and our refer to the plurality of uh, the godhead now i trust we do not need to refute the first four so we'll deal with uh, the heavenly court Um, firstly god created alone and the creation account is uninterested in Angelology, so it could not be referring to the heavenly council. Now, Fruitenbaum makes the point that when the angelic court is consulted, Scripture tells us so, such as First Kings twenty-two. If God was including a number of angelic creatures in in the plural, then man would 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 also be made in the image of them too. Angelic creatures, they radically vary in terms of appearance, uh, capability, purpose, and so forth. And therefore, it's it's a kind of guessing game, who God is including, uh, which then determines our reflected image. The following verse underscores uh, the process, saying, in his own image, in the image of God. Here we see the use of his, uh, him, uh, rather than our us. And this shows the kind of unity in, in the Godhead, but also making it abundantly clear that man is created in the image of God, Elohim, not the divine council who are created beings. Now, some may argue that, uh, that God was announcing to the, to the divine council, like to the divine council, rather than about them, and therefore not including the angelic beings in, in the plurality. But again, there's no clear, clear reference to the council, and the account is starkly uninterested in angelology. Now, in terms of how aware Moses was of the things he wrote, the creation account is unique. I would appeal to a dictation from God. Moses did not have to completely understand each and every point of, of meaning and significance. Having said that, Moses had already mentioned the Holy Spirit in verse two, so he could have been aware that there were, there were at least two persons in the Godhead, just from the text alone. The Israelites, the Israelites, they could have understood this, but they could not have grasped a heavenly counsel at this stage. Hamilton explains most plausible to me is the explanation that sees in the us a plural of fullness or plurality within the Godhead God the Father announced to the Son and Spirit the Son created as a potter and the Spirit helps and sustains and invades man the creation of man is an extension of God's Love. If there is no plurality within the Godhead, who was loving who before creation without the company of three persons? God moves from let there be to let us make. Humanity is the only creative act that is described as not just a verbal command, but a physical creation. Something special is about to take place. Genesis 1 provides a summary uh, in one verse of God creating mankind. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 2 then gives more details about the steps creating the male and female and we will follow this pattern and look at the details of that in the uh, the episode on the garden of Eden. The image of God is only used four times in the Old Testament. The same Hebrew word for image can mean a physical image or model or picture. In Genesis 5:3 th- uh, Seth the son of Adam is after his image. Image in the Septuagint, the, the uh, earliest Greek translation of the Old Testament, is icon e-i-k-o-n, icon, which is where we get the word icon. God was the original icon, Adam would be the original human icon. The phrase image of God was used to call kings in ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia. It detailed the king's function and being, but not appearance. Now in some sense God is saying there is a, there's a royalty about all of mankind, and the Israelites who had recently left Egypt would understand this first man is to be the royal king. And, and we will return to, to this later. Genesis 1 is the only place where the two nouns, image and likeness, are connected in the Old Testament, and much has been written to kind of decipher the precise meaning of image and likeness and how they are related. Uh, they have been explained as distinct aspect. Uh, some have said the image is referring to uh, the physical, uh, the, the, the natural aspect, and, and likeness the kind of spiritual and mental, and others have argued the opposite. Uh, it appears almost impossible to categorize them separately. Perhaps that is the point. The biblical worldview does not conform uh, to to the kind of dualism that the the natural and the spiritual are entwined. To avoid uh, confusion is to avoid confusion that the word likeness is added as a a modifier. Likeness adds limiting clarity. Uh, we, We are not, we're not an exact image. But we are are an image somewhat in the likeness of God. Adam is not begotten from God. Uh, He's not an exact reproduction of God or God in any way, but made in the likeness thereof. In the likeness adds detail to in the image. The Hebrew in the the likeness is, is similar to according to after the pattern of. It parallels with the wording of the tabernacle, right, to be made after the pattern of in Exodus. It could be translated according to our likeness, to be like, to resemble, to bear witness of. We are proof there is a God. You want proof there's a God? You are proof, right? And he made us to tabernacle with and in. We're not exactly the same, right? We are like him. Man sees, hears, speaks, rests on the seventh day like God. Yet we we can only make, we cannot create like God. And our bodies die unlike God, but our spirit lives for eternity like God. Likeness conveys not merely physical attributes. What is clear is that man is set apart. Now, firstly, there is the spiritual aspect that man is made in the image of. The identity of man is his soul, which which is spirit, meaning once created, we are eternal beings. Man's body is not only home to his spirit, but designed to receive the spirit of God, a three in one reflective image of the Trinity. Secondly, we do not discount the physical aspect. We We are not bodies, but we have bodies. The human body is made in the image of God. He has chosen to relate to us in a a, a man-shaped body, and he has made us in the image of such. Man's upright posture sets him apart from all life on earth. Original man stands before God, a dignified, regal, and righteous reflection. Thirdly, we bear an image of God's morality. Original righteousness was the status of man in those first days after creation. Let me quote John Wesley. Original righteousness is said to be that moral rectitude in which Adam was created. His reason was clear and sense, appetite and passion were subject to it. His judgment was uncorrupted and his will had a constant propensity to holiness. He had a supreme love of his creator, a fear of offending him and a readiness to do his will man has been gifted with a conscience to discern good from evil conscience con meaning with science meaning knowledge suggests that we act with knowledge of god's universal laws imprinted on our hearts man as the the image bearer is accountable to the true image for his actions fourthly a mental capacity we are blessed with reason including the the abstract philosophical, logic, creativity, the ability to learn, and as Grudem says, develop greater skill and complexity in technology, in agriculture, in science, and nearly every field of endeavour. Man is self-conscious, has a, a sense of shame and will. Man has an awareness of the future. All these things set us apart from animals lastly man is relational he is given the capacity for for fellowship with God through prayer instinctive or, or or kind of intuitive feelings that we call emotions a humor musicality and communication speech a facial expression and recognition signed language literature the bearing of the image of god indicates a profound oneness of mankind all reflect in equal measure as precious beings before our creator perhaps above all to image god is a status man represents god on earth as a representative or as representatives we utilize our ability because of our status for god's purposes and mission while animals come in many kinds man in one united kind mankind has only ever existed as mankind and will only ever be mankind Wenham asserts what god has distinguished and created distinct man ought not to confuse order not chaos is the hallmark of god's activity we must be willing to accept his decree, putting aside our philosophical and scientific presuppositions. In Genesis 1, only mankind is separated by sexuality. While animals are divided into male and female, it's it's not mentioned in the creation story, Um, it's, it's only mentioned later in Noah's time. Made from the same building blocks, so to speak, as animals, DNA, the degree to which we are uncommon is vast a friend of mine once said why do people say animals are like humans like wow aren't animals so intelligent and then he says when was the last time you saw a dog flying a helicopter (laughs) the point stands the verse 27 begins with with the creation of image bearers and closes with, with reference to both male and female, makes clear that both sexes bear his image. Hamilton explains, God created um, in his image a male Adam and a female Adam. Both share the image of God. Their sexuality is a gift from God, foreshadowing the blessing of fertility. Between the first man and woman, how's the richest DNA to produce everyone on earth, every eye color? every hair form, every skin tone, every build type, etc., free from genetic imperfection, unquestionably beautiful beings with the greatest capacity of image-bearing ability of mankind that has ever lived. Contrary to uh, the evolutionary narrative that depicts early man as primitive, the first man and woman woman were the most naturally sophisticated, well-formed, untapped talent to ever live. It would be downhill from here. Racism must stare deeply into the fact that everyone on this planet has descended from the same stock we are. In a real sense one big family it should compel us to not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself the creation of woman is last because of divine recognition of the human need for companionship pagan epics depict uh, a beginning whereby male and female powers begat gods and the truth is that in the beginning god who is without female counterparts created mankind with distinctions between male and female After the initial announcement, the second sentence of verse 26 immediately provides the purpose of his creation in man. And then after the creation of man in verse 27, the following verse, as if to sandwich it in, sees God bless and commission them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. As one, the man and woman were first blessed, and then as a team, given a twofold assignment procreate and exercise dominion. But it is not simply about having kids and ruling. The purpose being primarily about the expansion of righteous life, multiplying good fruit. Thus, God's glory would be extended around the globe. To multiply and fill the earth means God has global plans. Sex is is not sinful within marriage, rather it is commanded. Unlike the animals who received a blessing on day five as image bearers, they are to be fruitful and multiply, representing God. It cannot be overstated that the fulfillment of first blessing given to man is connected with with the life of the human seed. Wenham makes a bold statement about this joining of man and woman. Here, then, we have a clear statement of the divine purpose of marriage. Positively, it is for the procreation of children. Negatively, it is a rejection of the ancient oriental fertility cults. God desires his people to be fruitful. His promise makes any participation in such cults or the use of other devices to secure fertility not only redundant, but a mark of unbelief strong stuff a side topic that i i haven't delved into so i will leave that thought for you to mull over blessing from god is a theme of genesis animals mankind a seventh day adam noah the patriarchs today we speak of man's success don't we but a biblical worldview speaks of god's blessing Now, of course, the general principles of daily decisions add up, but look at the patriarchs, infertile, yet able to conceive a nation, foolish actions, yet gained great affluence. This assignment, or order, given to the first man and woman is regarded as the first of the 613 commandments of ancient Jewish tradition. Perhaps, perhaps the order should not be seen as a command as such in which one breaks. Otherwise, would we not have to count the, the, order, the order accompanied with, with the blessing to the animals on day five as a command, but they are not moral creatures to break a command, right? The order is bound to the blessing. John Sailhammer explains, since the introductory statement identifies them as a blessing, the imperatives are not to be understood as as commands in this verse. Moreover, the imperative, along with the Joseph, is the common mood of the blessing. Either way, God blesses them and then tells them to, to run with it as opposed to running contrary to it. What's more is the blessing the blessing empowers the order. There's an implicit promise that God will help them to carry out the order. Originally man was able not to sin and able to sin. The Israelites would would read the blessing here as something very real, right? very real possessing the enormous the enormous creative power of God blessing was to, uh, to 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 set free man to fulfill God's purposes they are commanded but in doing so they will be blessed the image of in verse 27 is is connected to uh, to be fruitful multiply subdue have dominion of verse twenty eight the image carries the abilities gifting the mental capacity, the will, etc, that distinguishes man from animal to to enable him to be successful in mission and this reminds me of it reminds me of the new covenant, God empowering and giving you the ability the spiritual capacity, and a heart to fulfill his commands now i 'm not familiar with anyone else that 's made that connection. Um, but you can see the parallels and we'll look at more closely to see that God does make a covenant with Adam in the garden. To exercise dominion is a royal duty, a royal assignment. Verse 28 includes subdue which is a stronger word than let them have dominion in, in verse 26. Almost as if force is implied if necessary. Now, that does not mean that they were allowed to to kill or eat the animals they were to dominate. Man is to subdue both the earth um, and its creatures of the air, sea, or land. Now, that man was was regal, an image-bearer of God, the focus of creation, blessed and gifted, given authority to subdue, contrasts the ancient mythical creation stories whereby Man was considered as an addendum and maintenance of land as an undignified existence. Man's purpose was to rule over the animal world on God's behalf as the image and in the image God. It is directly because he is created in his image that they are to have dominion. Nature is to be subjected to the man-king. Man is to be king over nature. Man is God's vice-regent on earth. As male and female they would rule as one. The complementary way in which that looks we will address later. Man is No evolutionary accident, he is dignified, powerful, purpose-driven. His status of bearing the image of God means it is precious, not another evolutionary step. God's royal representative means man's life is sacred. To murder a man would be to attempt to murder God. To purposely maim a man is to assault God. To mortally wound a man then? requires the ultimate punishment. God began with blessing the couple and then provisions to populate, subdue and have dominion, and finally diet. On day three, God created vegetation, which now corresponds to day six providing food. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. Genesis 1 doesn't say that man cannot eat meat. God would soon kill animals, their son would sacrifice sheep, but for now they were to have a fruit and veg diet because death is a foreign concept. Animals too were given a vegetarian diet. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has, has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. God provides for and sustains his creation. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The pagan epics describe man providing mythical gods with food. Very different. In closing, and it was so. As if to sign off on his work, now man was created having inspected everything that he had made, God deemed his creation as very good. Not simply good, but the uniqueness of day six is emphasised in very good. The completion of all creation is perfect and in harmony there is no sin no disobedience from any of his created beings now some idolize creation while others count the natural as evil both extremes contrary to the biblical worldview that sees god as the only one worthy of worship and his creation as originally good seeing his uh, good work induces uh, worship Of the Creator. Creation bears witness even through the layers of evil. God's good creation demands good stewardship void of exploitation and abuse. By looking at the original good states with special creation in Adam, the garden, blessing commands, we can see the patterns and how it sets up God's dealings with Israel land seed blessing themes of the abrahamic covenant god's original intention to bless all of humanity is seen in the covenant in genesis 12 to multiply and bear good fruit very similar to genesis 22 multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven right to subdue and have dominion right conquer and take possession of a promised land, and so forth. When we look at chapter two, we will see more of the resemblance between Adam and Israel. In terms of the broader purpose, it's not that God was lonely or required fellowship. Perfect love existed for eternity past within the Trinity. God created for his pleasure and for his glory. As a creative God, it gives him pleasure to create and as a loving God, it gives him pleasure to extend his love beyond himself uh, to us, enabling newly created beings to have a relationship with him. Thus, God created mankind, both male and female, in his own image to serve, glorify, worship, know and adore him. Far from unimportant, each of us are of profound significance in the eternal glorification of our Creator. Man has a sense of dignity as the culmination of God's infinite wisdom and skillful work of creation. Our purpose then is fulfilling the reason for being created, to glorify Him. And in His presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore in Psalm 16. To know and delight in his character draws out extravagant rejoicing in him and him over us. His plan for an extended family of love, joy, peace and perfection was off to a good start. Psalm 8, written by David, looks back to creation and man's role and purpose, and it begins and ends the same. O Lord our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is man's purpose, to make his name majestic in all the earth. And actually, this psalm doesn't just look back to Adam, but points ultimately forwards to the second Adam, Messiah. In closing, then, of Day 6, the structure is as follows. Uh, Part A of verse 26 is the announcement in the first person of God's intention. Uh, Part B um, of 26 is the purpose of man's creation, to rule the earth. Verse 27, creation of man. Verse 28, the blessing on man to breed and and rule the earth. Verse 29, uh, the assignment of food to man and 30 and to the animals. Um, All of the seven standard formulae are included. There are four divine speeches, twice as many as any other day, akin to twice as much manna on the sixth day for the Sabbath. Not simply good, but very good. The scriptures tell us that throughout the creative process there was rejoicing, of the heavenly beings and the Lord God rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Which leaves us with one question. What language did they speak? <laughs> what language did God speak to them? According to a Jewish tradition, this Adamic language was an early form of Hebrew because the names Eve and Woman only make sense in Hebrew, very possibly the universal scope leaves us to wonder. Day seven. While chapter one covers the days of creation, the narrative flows into the seventh day, uh, naturally ending at chapter two, uh, verse three. Verse one begins, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. The narrator is, is kind of zooming out to cause a sense of awe and, and wonder uh, of, the, of the this fresh heavens and earth both heavens and earth have hosts the phrase hosts of the earth or host of the earth doesn't appear in scripture uh, but we know it refers primarily to To mankind, right? We are the host of the earth. Whereas the host of heaven does appear elsewhere and refers to the angelic creatures. There is a debate over the meaning of verse one. Some say it only refers to the men of the earth, and others only the angels of heaven. I think both, right? It's a summary of the dwelling places, half half the universe apart and and the creatures that fill them yes the focus uh, of chapter one is on the earth um, and it it is uninterested in angelology uh, but i think it's it's a kind of passing comment Uh, we're not looking at that but yes at some point throughout the week i created them also Um, and on the seventh day god finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. When it says God finished the work, it's not that he continued his work into the seventh day finishing it off. It's speaking of the previous day's work. While man was the climax of creation, day seven is the the climax of the high plateau of the creation week. Uh, there was silence before creation and now on the seventh day of history there is stillness and quiet in the universe the the powerful vibes of creation became calm the thunderous noise ceased. the the universe complete and perfect readied to extend the glory of god god rested from his work uh, which in hebrew depicts a craftsman it's not that god was in physical need to recover but in a, in a sense of seizing from his skilled labor Sarna explains uh, the form and the oneness of the week, the Sabbath, or divine cessation from creation which, to Torah, is as much part of the cosmic order as the foregoing creativity. This day of quiet is to be sanctified. Once his uh, skilled labour was complete, God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. The days before he declared good or very good and blessed animal kinds and humankind and now he blesses the seventh day. Following the pattern of purpose, um, the blessing is concerned with the expansion of life and the extension of God's glory. Life and the ministry of displaying God's glory across the globe is entirely dependent upon the blessing of God and not upon our days of work. Only this day is sanctified, made holy, which, which means to set apart. The character and the composition of explanation of day seven is different. It is, it is set apart. Wenham notes that the threefold mention of a seventh day Each time, in a sentence of seven Hebrew words, draws attention to the special character of the seventh day. The seventh day of resting is to be set apart from the six days of craftsmanship. Time itself is categorised as as regular time and sacred time. The, The cosmos was created as a macro temple we saw how he stretched out the heavens like a tabernacle and consider too the temple language when god speaks to job about the creation of the earth and we've we've touched on on these verses previously. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? The cosmos was made good, unstained, beautiful, with the earth set apart from all planets to reflect the heavenly glory. And now universal time is separated between the common and the holy a holy cyclic period from sundown friday evening to sundown saturday evening now why is it special because god says so it's part of his ordained order now how can a day be holy well god in essence is holy Uh, to be declared holy means to be chosen by god for purpose the seventh day is is the first thing to be made or declared holy how can a day be blessed well we're familiar with individuals or people groups receiving blessing or or the work thereof but here we have a day with no work that is blessed and Wenham says there is a suggestion that those who observe the sabbath will, will enjoy divine blessing in their lives the term sabbath day is actually absent from this passage uh, as not to uh, confuse this this holy day with similar sounding pagan festivals the sabbath would would become the only kind of ritual in the ten commandments and as an explanation of the commandment to remember the sabbath the passage refers to the days of creation calling uh, the seventh day the the first sabbath it says for in six days the lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day therefore the lord blessed the sabbath day and made it holy a primary reason then for creating in six regular days was to create the pattern for man's productivity followed by rest on the seventh god stopped to reflect on what he had made. He works redemptive history through this seven-day pattern and immediate blessing signposts a future day of blessing. The Sabbath makes man reflect too and ask the biggest questions of life. Where have I come from, the creator? Who am I made in the image of God? What is the purpose of my life? to glorify God. How should I live and what is the product of the working days of my life? The Sabbath is is not a reward for hard work. Our blessings are credited only to God. In stopping work, man is mirroring God and so affirming there is a creator, the God of Israel. It is a reminder that we are not God and that our work always remains incomplete. It is a time of family refreshing, a reminder that we are creatures of not just space, but of time. It shifts us from production to presence. Our minds should project forward to the greater time of rest. Hebrews says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. It teaches Israel that he doesn't leave his work unfinished and that those who he calls to salvation, he will deliver. And we will see later how the Sabbath is of more significance to the people of Israel. Jesus would go on to say the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, which means that Jesus, the Son of Man, is Lord even of the Sabbath. So then God began with creating time and finished with time. But are we required to keep the Sabbath? There was no apparent command for all to keep the Sabbath. There's no indication it was a weekly thing going forward. Um, as stated, the Sabbath is not to be found, only the cognate verbal form Shabbat meaning to desist from labor, I'm quoting scholars here. It is not used as a, as a as a noun or a proper name for the seventh day until the Exodus, because only then is the command to keep the Sabbath actually given. The creation pattern sets up the institution for further revelation. We see in in Exodus that one month before God institutes it at Sinai, it is already adhered to. In the Ten Commandments, remember to keep assumes that they already do now adam may have been given some instructions uh, as an expression of god's law but it wouldn't have necessarily necessarily included observing the sabbath there's no uh, there's no mention of keeping the sabbath in the adamic covenant in in chapter 2 the seventh day the seventh day pattern would be a model for Israel to later follow rather than a creation ordinance required for all. Being familiar with the sabbath whether we keep it or not is fundamental to one's worldview. Desisting from work on the sabbath in recognition of God's declaration that that it is holy means man imitating his creator's Pattern. My understanding is that those um, under the New Covenant are not required to keep it. Um, but not required doesn't mean that we shouldn't. Uh, and there's a good reason to do so, particularly if you are Jewish, uh, which we'll look at when we come to the Exodus account. 6,000 years on, and the seven-day week is observed all around the world today. And the Jewish people, uh, with those who, who join them, continue to rest each sabbath. Throughout the scriptures, numbers find significance. In the creation accounts, three, seven, and ten are prominent. Three speaks of who God is, seven is the perfect number, and ten speaks of wholeness and completion. The threefold mention of seventh day, two halves of the week, three occasions it states he created, three occasions he made, three occasions he blesses, ten divine announcements God said. Ten mentions of kinds and none more apparent than the number seven. The seven day pattern echoes throughout uh, the scriptures and the number seven being used hundreds of times, often representing divine uh, perfection. Even in this section of Genesis alone there are seven paragraphs for seven days, seven acts of creation preceding the creation of humanity with a, a verbal expression, God said let. God saw that his creation was good, seven times uh, fulfillment and it was so seven times during the separation of waters on day on day 2 and 3 water is mentioned seven times seven times either naming or blessing follows an act of creation light or an and day occurs seven times in the first paragraph. The first verse is made up of seven Hebrew words. The second verse is a multiple of the first with 14 Hebrew words, and there are more, and of course, seven days. Although there are 10 announcements of, of the divine words and eight commands actually cited, all the formulae are grouped in sevens. 35 times God, Elohim, appears, 21 times the word earth, and so forth, all multiples of of seven. God is underscoring the the goodness, the wholeness, and the mathematical precision of the home he made for humanity. With literary beauty, concept, and motive, it puts to bed argument that suggests that Genesis was an accidental compilation recorded without supreme thought and insight, or direct influence from the creator. The formation of the heavenly lights, namely the sun and moon, along with uh, the seven-day pattern provide the basis for the Jubilee calendar, God's calendar, which is instituted through Moses. Uh, Throughout the scriptures, we will discover the use of seven days, seven weeks, seven years, and seven millennia. Seven weeks, seven times seven, is the period between Passover and Shavuot, Pentecost. Um, Seven weeks of years seven seven times seven years again is 49 plus the jubilee year if if you add a year thus the jubilee calendar is made up of 50 year units so the calendar is made up of blocks of sevens and fifties or five lots of ten as we will see these seven days of creation are not just musical and rhythmic beauty and mathematical prowess they are also a prophetic timeline with the end of the age in sight. Six days of working plus the seventh day of rest represents 6,000 years plus the millennial rest to come. Peter's second epistle and Hosea indicate this reality and this was understood by the majority of the church fathers. I quote many of them if you're interested in my video Count the patience. In this way also he is declaring the end from the beginning. It's also why the last few chapters of Revelation have many parallels with the first few chapters of Genesis. Now some commentators add that the activity within the creation days also uh, corresponds somewhat to the six millennia um, as as kind of defined dispensations of time. Light and separation from darkness on day one is connected with the the first Adam living almost to uh, the end of the first millennia. The separation of water on uh, day two with Noah and the flood the trees and fruit of day three with Exodus, Abraham and Torah, the two lights of day four with uh, the first and second temple, the fish and birds of day five with destruction of the temple and uh, nations dominating each other, man's uh, creation of uh, day six with the Messiah who will uh, finally come at the end and uh, the, the earth will then receive rest on the seventh day. Now, the seventh day of rest fits perfectly um, but it's difficult to nail down the other six for my liking um, there may well be general connections but I don't see dispensations of time um, I'm not a dispensationalist um, I think it speaks more descriptively of man's man's response to God if ever if anything rather than god's kind of dealing differently with mankind. what's more, um, only the seventh day is is set apart which is consistent with with the two-age model of this age and and the age to come um, which is found throughout the scriptures. We will demonstrate um, in the next section that these uh, creation days are ordinary days. And I'm going to include many quotes from contemporary scholars um, that are ranked as as some of the best in their field on on Genesis and, and, and really show that the author's intent could only be understood as 24 hour days. Genesis wasn't written for modern scientists. it was to be understood by former slaves and children it is a matter of scriptural authority let's conclude this section then traditional rabbinical insight often ignored in a casual study can be of interest the midrash informs us that the first letter of the hebrew is aleph and second beth God did not begin the Bible with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, while Aleph stands for Aror, the Hebrew for curse. Instead, he began it with Beth, which stands for bracha, the Hebrew word for blessing. God began the creation, the Bible, with blessing. Unlike ancient creation epics, the Biblical account of creation is apolitical with, as Sana writes, no direct allusion to the people of Israel, Jerusalem or the temple. It does not seek to validate national ideas or institutions. Moreover, it fulfils no cultic function. It is not attempting to prop up a pagan ancient dynasty or culture. It is universal in scope, lending credibility to the account the style of genesis 1 is it's beautifully written i hope you'd appreciate that now it's orderly right it's profound with symmetry it's mathematical and yet it's straightforward universal and a child can understand it it says something about our god genesis 1 is not typical hebrew poetry it is not pure priestly theology, as some have suggested. There is no hymnic element in the language. It is not normal Hebrew prose either. It is a majestic literary composition, particularly detailing the work of the Almighty God, setting up the chain of events that leads to the Patriarchs and Exodus. We've spent a significant time on this first chapter and the following three verses. And if you're still with me, you've done well. Um, But it's because the creation account is fundamental to the biblical worldview. Genesis 1 features as the first article of Christian creeds. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We see the oneness of God, the plurality within the Godhead, the distinction of God creator from his creation. It speaks of his power and wisdom and wonder. God is without peer and competitor, sovereign and without resistance. He is creator, lawgiver, the cause of all. The goodness of creation reflects the Creator. He commands into being. He speaks and nature obeys. He acts, executes, lovingly molds and sustains. He fulfills what he has said. He examines and approves good. He names and he blesses. He created, defines and marks time. Man is set apart, ordered, tasked, given covenant, companionship, responsibility, rest. Man can fellowship, obey, be a blessing. Israel would know who they worship and all those who seek to know him, the creator of heavens and earth. What separation, his blessing, his word, his approval, his naming and so forth looks like, what it means. It refutes all other worldviews and makes men stand in fear. Psalm 33 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Our response is fear and awe. Isaiah 42 is home to to such a stunning summary of creation in one verse. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it stretched vertically spread horizontally blessed invasively with spirit now before we move the story into the garden next time we will show how the creation days are the antithesis of evolution may god bless you and may you be fruitful and multiply see you next time